Hi, welcome everyone who's listening online today. My name is Ed Travers. I'm the teaching pastor here at LifePoint in Westerville. Grateful to have you listening in with us. I'm going to give you two quick things. First, if this is your first time listening in, uh, stop your, you know, your platform you're listening to this on and go to lpguest.com. That's lpguest.com. And if you go there, there's a guest information button. Hit that button uh, and fill out a little bit of information. Let us know how you heard about LifePoint. There are five different ministries you'll see as you scroll down that page, uh, five ministries that we support. If you check one of the boxes, we'll do a $5 donation on your behalf to say thanks for coming or thanks for listening in today. Uh, The second thing is I want you to know that we're going to take communion today. Uh, So grab some elements, uh, maybe a piece of bread and some water, whatever it is that you want to use metaphorically to to take communion uh, with us here during this message. So uh, that said, uh, let's get started. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that uh, today would be a day that you use this message uh, to help encourage people to love you, to know you, to grow in faith. Uh, God, we ask that in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, I had a conversation uh, with a buddy of mine recently, and he and I uh, were talking about uh, ways that God inspires us. And I brought up how I was inspired by a former NFL running back uh, named Gail Sayers. Now, Gail Sayers was a running back in the late 60s for the Chicago Bears. Uh, you might actually have heard of him, if you're not a football fan, because of the movie Brian's Song. Uh, that kind of depicted him and another running back and their relationship together in the late 60s. Um, that said... I remember as a kid seeing videos of him, uh, you know, old movies or like, you know, reel-to-reel movies that they would have on, on ESPN of, of him running, but they did an interview with Gail Sayers. And I'm telling my buddy about this interview, and in the interview, Gail Sayers said, all I need is 18 inches. Give me 18 inches of daylight. That's all I need. And he's, he's referring to the idea of a running back trying to hit the hole. So if the offensive lineman can just break a little bit of daylight, give him a little bit of a hole to hit, he's going to hit it. And if you look at his career and watch some of his runs, I mean, he literally was just blazing fast. He could burst through the line and just take off for long TD runs. I mean, just an amazing running back. But I'm telling my friend, here's how that inspired me. I always want to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's inside me. I want to be like that. I want to have, give me 18 inches. Give me a door to share the gospel with someone. Give me a door to encourage someone in Jesus. I always want to be ready at all times to, to just, you know, hit the hole, if you will, and just go through and burst to daylight, right? To have the Lord use my life. I always want to be ready. So we're having this conversation and the conversation naturally turns to who's the greatest running back of all time. Like who is the goat, right? And you know, he talked about Jim Brown and how Jim Brown, you know, was the best running back. And I remember my dad saying the same thing, that he grew up watching Jim Brown and loved him, thought he was the greatest running back of all time. Then as you got into the 70s, uh, you know, Walter Payton was one of the best of all time. I, I grew up a fan of Franco Harris. But I told my buddy, I said, in my lifetime, there was nobody like Barry Sanders. I mean, he played on horrible offensive teams, and he still was amazing. Like, no one could stop him. And so we're just going back and forth. And it occurred to me that this is normal, right? This is, this is just the way it is sometimes between guys and maybe ladies. That, you know, we, we love to debate who's the greatest of all time at anything, whether it's sports, uh, whether it's music, or whether it's, uh, you know, dancing or art. I mean, we, we love to talk about who's the greatest of all time. Well, in this series, we're talking uh, about labels, of how Jesus, through the book of Luke, interacted with people on the fringes of society, those who were rebellious or irreligious, and he went towards them. And because it was God through Christ going to these people to bring them close, it just sends a message that we are to live a life above labels. 
These people would have been labeled in society and Jesus went towards them. And so we know then that's the same for us, that we should be carrying the message of Christ to other people no matter what. But when you read through the book of Luke, you also notice that those who would be considered great in you know, religious circles, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, those who were considered great in their society, religiously speaking, Jesus never seemed to affirm them. Isn't that interesting? And then you're, you have to wonder, okay, so, so what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? What does that mean? And, you know, we naturally, you know, can compare ourselves to other people and, and wonder, you know, what would it mean to be great in God's kingdom? So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, open up uh, to uh, Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to give you kind of a snapshot of, of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Uh, and if you look at all the Gospels, you see there's a much longer conversation happening, but I'm going to give you just kind of a window into that that we see here in Luke 22. Here's the first thing I want to say, is that there is only one grace of all time. There's only one. Now, in context, Jesus has been traveling with his disciples now for three and a half years. He has been training them, teaching them, uh, doing amazing things in their midst. And then this is the time uh, that they're in Jerusalem. They're ready to have the Passover meal right before he's about to be arrested. So this is the last supper. And here's where we pick it up in chapter 22, verse 14. It says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. They likewise... They, the cup that they, had, uh, that they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We know this passage as the Last Supper. But this passage really is depicting a Passover meal that they are having. Now understand the history of the Passover. Let's go back in time for a second. All the way back to when, you know, God chose Abraham to be a, the, you know, the, the father, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. And Abraham had Isaac and then Jacob and the 12 sons. And, and those, you know, the family grew, ended up down in Egypt. And for 400 years, they continued to grow down there and they became slaves under the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh. They cried out to God, God, deliver us. And God sent Moses to them to bring them up out of Egypt and into their own land. So we know if you, if you read all the way back there in Genesis, there were 10 plagues and all of the plagues were meant to really humble the Pharaoh and humble the people of Egypt so that they will allow the Israelites to go. Well, the last plague was that of the firstborn being killed in all of Egypt. So God told the people, I want you to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, and I want you to sacrifice the lamb, and I want you to put the blood over the doorpost of your home that you're staying in. And then the angel that's coming down to take the life of the firstborn will see the blood and will pass over that house and go to the next. So that's known as the Passover. So that happened, and there was suffering in all of Egypt, and the Pharaoh's own, own son died, and then he you know, allowed the Israelites to leave, and you know the rest of the story. But God commanded the Israelites, I want you to celebrate the Passover meal every year. At the same time, I want you to celebrate this. So imagine for centuries, for you know, thousands of years, they're celebrating the Passover 
And every year they do it for one purpose, to remember what God has done. But it was all a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing to something bigger. And then eventually, as the people of Israel were back in their land, and God sent a prophet named John, John the Baptist, to pave the way for the Messiah who was gonna come. And so John is out preaching, getting the people ready for the kingdom of God to come. And he sees Jesus enter into the area and he said, there he is. That's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's pointing to Jesus. And so we know that Jesus himself is the lamb of God. He is the great Passover lamb. Now, the people of Israel way back during the time of Egypt, they were enslaved by you know, the Egyptians. But we know now that the lamb of God takes away the sin that enslaves all mankind. That anyone who would come to him would be set free of sin. So here he is taking the bread and the wine and he's saying, look, this is now my body, which is gonna be broken for you. And the disciples didn't exactly understand what was happening, but they knew something was happening, right? They, they knew that there was danger happening for Jesus, but his body was gonna be broken on the cross. It's by his wounds, we are healed. And he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of a new covenant. A covenant means promise. There's a new promise that God has with his people that anyone who would believe in the son, who would have faith in Jesus would no longer perish, but have eternal life. Why? Because his blood was shed for the remission of sins. So that anyone who would come to him, that his blood would cover that person, the great Passover lamb spilling his blood for us. This is what Jesus did. We have a savior who bleeds for us. This is what makes him the greatest of all time. There is no other person. In fact, here's what it says in Philippians chapter two, verse five. It says, have this mind among yourselves. So think about this, be like-minded, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ who's in us. Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you see that what Jesus did is the example set for all mankind that we're to have the same mindset of Christ that he laid down his life, even though he was God in the flesh, he didn't consider that equality something he would hang on to. He laid it all down, took on the form of a servant and allowed his life to be taken from him, to be broken for all mankind. And because of that, God the Father has bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that's above all names. There is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved, only Jesus. He is the greatest of all time. This is the problem, I think, is that it's easy for us, uh, who, people who go to church or people who live in this culture, to hear the name Jesus often because of Christmas and Easter, we live in a culture where church is fairly normal. There's still you know, uh, a little less than, than half the people in our community go to church. So it's, people are well aware of Jesus. But Jesus can become kind of like background uh, wallpaper, if you will. That we think about Jesus like, oh yes, oh yes, yes, he died for people. Yes, you know, I know he rose from the grave. And it just becomes kind of drifting into the background of our society and the background of our lives. And we forget what he did. Well, Jesus commanded the church that every time you come together to take communion, I want you to remember. We are told specifically to remember what it is that he did. 
So let's do that together. This is why we take communion. For all those who are believers in Christ, those who've put their faith in Jesus, he says, I want you to take, take the bread. This represents the body of Christ. And when you take it, remember what Jesus did on the cross for you. Let's take that together. Remember that same night when he took the cup, he said, this is a new covenant, it's a new promise that anyone who would come to him in faith, that he would make them a child of God. They would pass from death to life. Why? Because Jesus' blood was, was shed for the remission of sins for all mankind, that we could be made right with God the Father. We could be righteous with God. He says, when you take this, I want you to remember that. Remember what I did. Let's remember Christ and what he did together. Well, this is the thing. That moment that's happening, historically, the Last Supper, they're having the Passover meal and Jesus is sharing with them, you know, on the night before the arrest, he's sharing with them this incredible moment. And then he tells them, but my betrayer is here at the table. Someone at the table is gonna betray Jesus. So the disciples start talking amongst each other saying, well, it's not me. Well, it's not me. I would never do that. It's not me. Everyone's, you know, kind of having this conversation. And then the conversation turns. And here's the next thing I want you to see. There's something in us that wants to be great. Here's what, it, what happens next in conversation uh, there at the Last Supper, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that interesting? Can you just see it happening you know, Jesus is, you know, getting ready to prepare them for what's about to happen that night. And they're at the dinner and, you know, they're all reclining, they're eating together. And, uh, you know, they're saying, well, I'm not going to betray him. I would never do that. And the conversation naturally goes to who's the greatest, you know, and maybe, you know, you can almost hear them. James and, and, and John, the brothers are like, well, you know, we're the sons of thunder. We're going we're gonna to be the leaders. Or maybe Peter's like, well, I walked on water you know, and the other guy's like, well, you sank, you know, and Matthew's like, well, I'm a great collector. I know how to write things down. And I mean, they're all probably jockeying for position. Who's going to be the greatest, but why? Why wouldn't they do that? I mean, isn't it true that it was Jesus that was doing all the great things among them? Wasn't it Jesus who calmed the storm? It wasn't it Jesus that was healing people and casting out demons? Wasn't it Jesus that was teaching the masses, making you know, a small lunch into a lunch for 5,000? Wasn't it Jesus who rose Lazarus from the grave? I mean, Jesus is the greatest. Why would they be so concerned with themselves and who's gonna line up in position? This is actually the third time that is recorded that this conversation is taking place. Like this is not just a one-time thing at the, at the Last Supper. This had happened before and another time. This is the third time the disciples were fixated on what, where they landed in the order of rank. I was thinking about how that's true, that we, we play the comparison game all the time in our lives. I was thinking just as a kid, right? You know, I remember being on the, on the playground and looking at the other boys going, who's going to be the best kickball player? You know, who can run the fastest? Who, who's the smartest one in class? Who's the best looking? You know, these are the things we compare. Even when we're children, we compare ourselves to other children. Who's gonna be the, the pecking order? And you would think that when we become adults, we would mature and we'd go beyond that. But that's not true, is it? People compare themselves, uh, you know, based on, you know, how they look, who's the fittest, uh, you know, who, who has the most money, 
Who has the most prestigious job? Who has the nicest toys, the cars, the house, the vacation? People compare themselves by parenting. Well, this person parents better than this person. I parent better than them all. They should be listening to me. How we handle our 401ks. Like we can find anything to compare ourselves to. It even happens in the church where this person has this role. They must be really important. I mean, this happens. Why does this happen? There's something in us that longs to, to kind of become great or see ourselves of value even above other people. I was thinking about a situation that happened in my life. Let me tell you about a job I got right out of high school. I Actually, my senior year of high school and, and for the next several years, I worked at a sporting goods store in Columbus. And uh, I worked my way up uh, to become a department manager just a couple years out of high school. And I was given the shoe department and the weight department, accessories department. Like, and so I had kind of these, these high volume departments in in the store. And I felt like, man, they've given me a lot of responsibility for such a young age. I thought I'm killing it. And then it wasn't long after that, I got promoted to assistant manager and I was the youngest assistant manager in the entire company. And I'm like, I have, I've, I've worked my way up from a department head to now an assistant manager of the store. And I felt like I'm, I'm 20 years old and I am, I'm literally looked at a certain way and they recognize in me that how hard I'm working, how committed I am. And they also recognize my talent, you know, like I, that was kind of my identity. Well, they brought in a new guy to be one of the assistant managers. So each store had a store manager and several assistant managers. They brought in a new guy. His name was Bill and uh, Bill was a brilliant guy, very smart, uh, very educated, sharp guy and very personable. He was extremely funny. Like you couldn't be in conversation with him, but you know, you'd end up laughing, you'd be in stitches just because the guy was just so hilarious of a personality. Well, the problem was that that's kind of what he did in the store. Like he was constantly talking to all the employees and you know, getting conversation and his efficiency was pretty low. I'll leave it at that. In fact, I would have said at that time, he was just lazy. I'm out here working it, slaving it, getting it done. And he wasn't getting it done. And I kind of had animosity towards him because I felt like I had to carry his weight and mine. And I would be frustrated. Well, and then it happened one day. You know, I got along with him fine, but I found out something I was not supposed to know. I found out they were paying him the same rate they were paying me. Here I am, I'm this young guy, I'm 20 years old, and I am angry. I mean, just livid. I'm ready to leave the company. I'm so angry. I can't believe, I've been here for like four years. I work extremely hard. This guy doesn't work as hard as me. I mean, I'm way more efficient. They should invest in me. Why are they paying him the same as me? I remember wanting to leave the company over this. Isn't that interesting? You know, when I look back at that, what was it inside me that was so angry at him simply for taking the, you know, the job they offered him? Why was I so angry? That thing is in us. You know, we wouldn't say out loud, it's not, it's not really good socially. Say, well, I want to be greater than everyone else. Like we don't say those things. But deep down, when someone kind of comes up against what we believe we're entitled to, that's when we get angry. Someone questions our ability at work. Someone questions our ability as a parent. Someone questions our kids around us that the coach doesn't give them, you know, what we think they deserve. I mean, it can just inflame us because there's that thing in us that wants to be great. We want to be in position. But in the kingdom of God, here's what I want to share is that the true greatness is upside down, completely upside down. Here's what Jesus says in verse 25. So here's how he answers this debate taking place. And he said to them, the kings of Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader is the one who serves. 
For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So let's think about that. He's saying, look, you guys are doing what is natural. You naturally look at what's around you in our society, in culture, and you're trying to rise up the ranks just like everyone else in culture does. And then he points out Roman culture, Roman leaders, even in Jewish culture, that the most important person sits and reclines at the table and everyone serves them. They are the benefactors, meaning because they're here, everyone in culture benefits from their well-being. They, they know how to lead, and because they're leaders, and because they're important, because they're great, society needs to serve them. That's how the Gentiles did it. That's what he's saying, Roman culture. That's what happens. He says, that is not the way you do it. And maybe the disciples are thinking, okay, when Jesus comes in his kingdom, I'm gonna be on his right and his left. I'm gonna be the chief this. I'm gonna be the chief that. And maybe they think that they're gonna have that mentality as, as the Gentiles do. And he's saying, no, that's not how the kingdom of God works at all. Interesting. He says, rather, let the greatest among you be like the servant. Now, it doesn't say that here, but when you read the book of John, you recognize that it's here at the Last Supper that in this moment, Jesus gets a towel, he wraps it around his waist, he gets out the water basin, and he starts washing their feet. We're talking about the greatest of all time, right? If there's one greatest of all time, it's Jesus. He did something that he has the name above all names. In fact, you go beyond that and realize that Jesus is the one that created the world. It says that in him, all things came to be. So he made the world. That means he invented DNA, he invented your, your body, all the systems in your body, all the organs, everything that makes your body, your brain. I mean, he invented that. He spoke the world into existence with a word. The universe has come together. This is that person. He's that important. And he's washing their feet. And Paul, the apostle, wrote, we should have the same mind as that of Jesus Christ to be a servant. So how do you, how do, you do that? Now, I, I was reading as I was studying for this passage, one guy said that taking a lowly position isn't something you do to prove yourself in the kingdom of God. The lowly position is in and of itself the greatness of the kingdom of God, the opportunity to serve others. I, I think about that, that I've, and I've watched people who say, well, I'm gonna be great. If that means being great is to be the lowest position, I'll take the lowest position. But what happens is those people inevitably tend to get angry at others because other people aren't doing the same things they are. In fact, taking that low position can almost be like, uh, like a game. Like if I do this, then I'm gonna be the greatest. But that's not the heart of Christ. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, meaning he didn't even consider rising up the ranks. I mean, that's difficult. How do you, how do you learn to have the mindset of Christ and just to be a servant? Interestingly enough, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples where he talked about in the kingdom of God uh, that when those who come before God, God will say to them, hey, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And at that time, those people will say, well, when did we do that? We didn't see you. We didn't give that stuff to you. And he said, well, when you gave it to the least of these in the kingdom of God, you gave it to me. It almost implies that these people they naturally just served others. They didn't consider that. It's almost like they couldn't even remember. Oh, did I do that? Oh, that's right. I remember going to visit the folks. I remember taking care of their food. Like it just becomes normal to their personality, normal to their character. The question is, well, how do you get that mindset? How do you get the mindset to be the least? I love how it says that, you know, to be the younger or to be the least, to be the servant, that Christ himself is the servant. 
So if you struggle with that, you struggle to serve others, if that is a, you know, it's a chore to you, if it's, uh, you know, difficult to kind of like psych yourself up to be a servant to others, then we have to come back to Christ and have the mindset of Christ. We go back to him and say, Jesus, you've got to change my heart. Help me to be a servant. Can I be honest with you? God didn't really start using my life until I had a moment with God where I recognized that he was greater than me. There was a moment in my life where I just, I was overcome by the incredible glory of God. And I said to God, I'm gonna stop trying to impress you. I'm gonna stop trying to do things so you'll notice me. I said, God, from now on, I just wanna serve you. You say jump, I say how high. I said, God, if I can push a broom for you, if I could just be where you're at, I wanna do that. And it was in that moment that heart changed for me where God started to use my life. I think that has to happen for all of us. At some point, we recognize that we are, we are the janitors in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you about a guy in my life. Uh, this guy uh, came to my life as maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, he was a young uh, man, 18 years old, and he had just recently given his life to Christ. And at the time, we had all these collegiate leaders who were following Jesus, and many of them were doing some incredible work uh, in, their, in their community. They were leading life groups. Some of them I was training to become pastors. They were leading mission trips and, and going across and they would serve over in places for an entire year overseas. Like these guys were kind of like the leaders of our church. And this young guy that I met wanted to be like them. Like, what do I got to do to be like these guys? Like he just admired them and wanted to be like them. And also he wanted to be seen kind of the way they were seen. So he kept trying to figure out ways to do that. And he would lead a small group and, uh, or a life group. And that life group, it never seemed to grow like it did for the other guys. This guy was socially awkward. He wasn't really that great with people. He didn't, people didn't really gravitate towards him and his leadership. And I think mostly it's because he was trying so hard because he wanted to be seen kind of like these guys that he admired. You see, he'd create a pecking order of greatness in his mind and he wanted to be like them. Well, after several years, I remember sitting down with him and I told him, I said, do you, do you know the story of James, the son of Alphaeus? And he said, no. I said, in the New Testament, there are three Jameses that are prominent in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John. Those two guys, the sons of thunder, God used them in mighty ways. In fact, James was one of the first who was martyred in the kingdom of God. God used him in just incredible ways in the, in the early church. The other James that's prominent in the New Testament is James, the brother of Jesus. At first, James was a skeptic. James didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah. He, he literally mocked him at one point. But after Jesus rose from the dead, James became a believer. And I think that's what it was gonna take for him, right? He had to see his brother uh, die and raise from the grave. And, and James then became a sold out follower and no longer called him his brother, he called him Lord. James became one of the leaders of the early church. In fact, if you read in Acts where it talks about the council of Jerusalem, where there was this huge battle going on, are we gonna go towards legalism or are we gonna go towards grace? And James was there and put the final nail in the coffin saying, no, we are grace. We're all about the grace of God. And James also wrote a book uh, in the New Testament, the book of James, which you and I can read today. This, this incredible leader. So you have James, uh, the brother of John, and you have James, the brother of Jesus, these incredible Jameses. I said, James, son of Alphaeus, is pretty obscure. His nickname was James the Less. You can read about that in the book of Mark, that this guy was known as James the Less. Now, what was the Less? Uh, some people think that it meant he was lesser in stature, that James, the brother of John, was taller. He was James the greater, and James, son of Alphaeus, was smaller, so he was James the less. 
It's also possible that he was younger than the other James. James was older than him, and he was the younger. It's possible he was the younger or he was smaller in stature. But here's what you recognize. James, son of Alphaeus, James the less, there's nothing in Scripture that really distinguishes his character. There's nothing that, that's good or bad. He's really just kind of obscure. In fact, when you look at church history, uh, there's some stories that talk about how he went and became a martyr and had some, some great work in certain areas, but it's really pretty non-existent when you look him up. We don't really know what happened to him. Isn't that interesting? I'm having this conversation with this guy. I said, buddy, you need to be James the Less. Stop trying to be James the Great. Become James the Less. I'll never forget the conversation, and I think it became a turning point for his life. I have since watched him go on to uh, do some incredible things. God's used him uh, to use in his gifting. Uh, he went to work with the largest uh, missions team in the world. Uh, he's currently serving on staff at a church at a church plant in the southwest side of, of Columbus. God's using his life because he's started to learn that it's not about him. He doesn't need to prove himself to God. He's already loved. As flawed as he is, as limited skills as he has, it doesn't determine his value. God doesn't determine our value by our accomplishments. He simply wants us to love him and to be faithful to him. Wherever you're at, I just want to challenge you with that. Have you found yourself, you know, kind of looking down on others because they aren't like you? Have you looked at other people and thought they're just better than you and it kind of holds you back that you kind of give yourself a label and, and it kind of becomes your limit because you don't see yourself as, as valuable? Do you, you know, look at other people's parenting skills or other people's finances or other people's vacations or the way they serve? Or have you, you, you find yourself kind of ranking yourself in a pecking order of what it means to be great in the kingdom? Understand that none of that is the kingdom of God. Jesus simply wants us to be faithful to him to be his servants, to consider ourselves the less and allow him to use our life because it's all about him. All that we do should point back to the greatness of who he is in our lives. I say that to you and, and I pray that uh, God will use this in your life to challenge you uh, just to submit your life even more to him. And what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? Don't we see that in Christ Jesus? Don't we see that, that he laid down his life and isn't, doesn't it say that there is no greater love than this, that you would lay down your life for your friends? Isn't that what Jesus did? He laid down his life. Isn't that what we're called to do? It says to, to lay down your life, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, to lay down our life we, with all mentality, all mindset in our heart. We say, I wanna have the same mind of Christ. God, I wanna be your servant. Then we pick up the cross, meaning that's the banner in which we carry our lives. We want the message of the cross, the message of the grace of God, that anyone who comes to Jesus because of the cross, because of the resurrection, that they could be made right with the Father. They could be forgiven and receive the grace and mercy of Jesus. We carry that message everywhere we go. And then finally, that it says to follow Jesus. We, we lay down our life, we pick up the cross and we follow Jesus. We follow him in his activity. We, we start to pray and discern where is God active around us. And we, we go towards those people and those situations to be servants to be used by Christ. Wherever you're at, I just want to challenge you with that. And I would just say that uh, if you are listening in and maybe you've never given your life to Christ, understand that when he is bread, you know, that, that symbol of his body being broken and the wine, the symbol of his blood being shed, he did that for you so that your sins could be forgiven. That you simply come to him, not because you're great, not because you have more faith than everyone else, not because you have a lot to offer. You simply come to him in faith, in all humility and say, I want to receive the gift of grace and mercy. Let's pray together. 
Father, I pray for all of us that are trying to follow you with our lives. We get caught up and distracted and uh, we start to think in our minds, what is it makes us great or not great? And it becomes a limit for us or sometimes we become full of ourselves. God, make us servants in your eyes that we would be the least. God, that somehow use our lives so that people would recognize your greatness and your glory. God, I pray for those who are maybe listening in who have never made the decision to follow you. I just wanna say to you, if that's you, simply say to God right now, God, I believe in you. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and I believe he rose from the grave. Tell him that. And then say to Jesus, because Jesus said that anyone who would come to him would be his son, would cross from death to life. Here's what you do. You say, Jesus, will you please come into my life? I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. Just tell him that. Say, I am sorry. I wanna turn my life to you. Help me to follow you. Will you please lead me? Just tell him that. You need to know that little step of faith, of humility in your heart is what makes you right with God. Not because you're great, because the greatness of Christ was on display in the cross that anyone who would come to him could receive salvation. Father, I pray for all those who are making steps to hear your voice, to come to you in faith, that you would meet them where they're at and they would sense your Holy Spirit working in their life. God, put people in their life that can help them to grow. And we ask all this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening in. I just want to say to you that if you have questions, if you uh, have a step you're thinking about taking, whether it's a step of baptism or you want to get connected to the church or you want to start being a giver, whatever it is, you can reach out to me at edt at lifepointohio.com. I'd be happy to try to answer any questions you have. Thanks again for listening in. Until next time, God bless.